Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 463 with Brian Kurtz. Brian is uh, something of a legend in the realm of marketing, and I think this is a powerful episode for you, even if you have nothing to do with marketing, just to learn a couple perspectives on what it takes to really be persuasive from his unique career. So you'll learn, one, why knowing your audience is the biggest key to persuasion, two, the four pillars of being extraordinary, and three, how to over-deliver at work without burning out. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find them over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F463. One of the other cool things at awesomeatyourjob.com is the ability to search the full text transcripts of every episode with that magnifying search class, as well as finding the episodes tagged by the topic and competency covered and some of the favorites labeled A, B, C, D, E, F at the top of your podcast feed between episodes zero and one. So you can find the perfect episode for your situation via several easy mechanisms. Now, here's Brian's story. Brian Kurtz has been a serial direct marketer for almost 40 years and never met a medium he didn't like. Brian left his beloved boardroom in January 2015 after 34 years in which he was responsible for the mailing of close to 2 billion pieces of direct mail in his career. He worked with many of the most legendary copywriters and consultants who have ever lived under his marketing leadership. And during his tenure, the revenues went from about 5 million bucks to over 150 million bucks. Brian writes and speaks regularly. His recent content can be found at briankurtz.net and briankurtz.net slash blog. His first book, The Advertising Solution, was released in October 2017. His second book, Over Deliver, Build a Business for a Lifetime Playing the Long Game in Direct Response Marketing, was released in April of 2019. Brian also loves being a Little League baseball umpire. Big thanks to Brian for sharing his wisdom with us. Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Brian. Brian, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Great to be here. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to be awesome at my job after this, but uh, <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Well, you have a heck of a track record for being awesome at your job, and, and I'd love it if maybe we could start by you orienting us a little bit to to your story. You know, what's boardroom, what's direct response copywriting, and, and where's Brian fit into all this? Well, I had a pretty standard trajectory or or career because I, I worked for 34 years for a company called Boardroom, which was a newsletter publisher, book publisher, direct response marketing, meaning when I say direct response, I mean measurable marketing, making sure the media you buy pays out and everything is 
is measurable. And mm-hmm. it was a very gradual trajectory. And I ended up, by the time I left, I was running the marketing department and I was uh, an equity partner. And, and it was just a, you know, I'm not a bootstrap entrepreneur by any means. It's been a great ride because I was able to learn direct response marketing from the most amazing copywriters and consultants and everybody that boardroom work with because it was boardroom was kind of an iconic brand in the marketing world and so when i left five years ago i went out and launched my own thing and and i guess it's a classic case of those who did it have a responsibility to teach it and that's been my second career which is as a direct marketing educator and teacher so I went from in business to consumer marketing, mailing, you know, 2 billion pieces of mail and different kinds of, of messages to consumers to then going out in a business to business environment and training and creating mastermind groups and working with some of the top direct marketers in teaching what I had learned and also realizing that there was also still so much to learn. And so bringing in great speakers to my mastermind groups so that I can learn as well about all the new media. Because when I was growing up in this world, there were only so many media choices. You had direct mail, you had space advertising, you had TV, radio, but now advertising opportunities are infinite. And so the ability to know what's going on and choose properly is mind-boggling, but it's also exciting. And that's been the premise of my new work as as an entrepreneur and a, an educator. So that's kind of the the career in a nutshell. And you can pick apart that or ask me any questions on that if you think it's applicable. Well, I think that my favorite thing you said there, for those who are not as familiar with boardroom and, and it's sort of, you know, legendary status is two billion pieces of mail. So one, because I love numbers and two, that just kind of really paints a picture for what we're talking about here is is that uh, this is a big scope of operations. And what I find so exciting and intriguing about it is that that business is really kind of live or die by how persuasive and effective your words are in the pieces of mail that you're sending out. And, And so if and you're measuring the results on that. Like, so if your words are, are converting at a, at a high percentage such that many people are buying, then, hey, you're profitable and you're growing. And if they're not, well, then you've just burned a whole lot of cash on stamps and envelopes and pieces of paper. I will say this, though, that and, and you, you did ask me about copywriting and I'm not a copywriter, but I, I have a good sense of copy and I've worked with the best copywriters in the world. And what's interesting is that you could have the best copy, but you have to make sure that you have the right list and the right offers to make that copy sing. And so I always talk in my book, Over Deliver, I talked about the 40-40-20 rule, which was a, a rule of direct response marketing. And it's not exact, but it's basically that the success of a campaign is 40% the list, 40% offer, and 20% the creative or the copy. Now, that makes it sound like the copy is half as important as the offer or the list, but it's not. What it's saying is that you could have the best copy, but without your list and offer dialed in, you're probably not going to get any response. 
Whereas if you have your list and offer dialed in and you have mediocre copy, you actually are going to make some money because the list is, I think the list to me, I call it the 41, 39, 20 rule because the list is the most important. And once you have the list and the proof is in people who do affiliate programs today, they get somebody who has a list of people who might like their product or service they endorse it they tell you how great it is and you could have any kind of copy in that but that list is so perfect that it's going to get some response now the trick in direct response marketing and why creative and copywriting and persuasiveness and all of that is critically important is that if you get copy that's world class and you have your list and offer dialed in then you've got direct marketing nirvana i mean there you've got the ability to persuade, the ability to move people to action. And the best copywriters, it's funny, I, my first book, The Advertising Solution, where I profiled six of the great advertising men of all time. And the interesting thing is that they were all copywriters and they all always talked about the audience and the list more than they talked about their amazing copy because they knew that if the list was right, it made their job easier, and then they knew who they were writing for. So I just wanted to make that distinction of not that copy is the least important, it's actually, in some cases, the most important for big breakthroughs, but you have to have your list and your offer dialed in to make it as impactful as possible. Understood, and I find that encouraging. So you have had a front row seat there at Big Player uh, in this game, and you've seen their, their revenues go up 30 times during your career there, which is pretty cool, 5 million to 150 million, kudos. And so then it, I think there's what's that expression is like, oh boy, uh, he could sell snow to an Eskimo. <laughs> and he's like, no, actually nobody can really do that. The Eskimo, that audience member, that person on the list <laughs> is in no need of snow. And, uh, and so it doesn't matter how, how persuasively brilliant the words are, it's not going to happen. Yeah, I've had, I've had many, many failures and many, many terrible direct mail programs and marketing programs. But the beauty is that everything is testable, everything is measurable, and that's what makes being good at my job and being uh, like my job so wonderful, that direct marketing is the numbers don't lie, you're judged on how the customer responds, and you also can get out. You can have a program that's a disaster, and you can walk away from it, but you know you don't have to throw good money after bad. You don't have to be in a terrible position because you're testing in small increments and then pyramiding and moving slowly through that process. And if anybody who thinks it's easy, it's not. But it's a methodical way of thinking about marketing that I've always thought is just a wonderful place to be. And so no, I'm not selling snow to Eskimos, but I can sell a lot of things to Eskimos if I know <laughs> what the Eskimo needs or wants. Right. <laughs> and it may be snow, but probably not. And you've mm -hmm. got to 
figure that out. And that's through testing. It's just so funny. My, my creative brain, I'm just sort of working on it in terms of thinking, boy, you know, uh, it, it's just probably a certain way you could make that offer with the snow actually appealing in terms of this is the perfect kind of snow for making igloos. And we're going to deliver a specific quantity, you know, right to where you need it, right when you need it. So it'll be so much more convenient than having to find the best snow for your igloo making. I guess that, that's mixing the the offer side alongside the copy. Yeah, there's a, one of the uh, copywriters in the advertising solution that I wrote about, I think it was John Caples. He said something like, there's very little difference between a $50 cigar and a 50 cent cigar. And it's how you position it and how you make it worthwhile and make it fit the needs of the customer. And I believe that. Well, so I'd love to hear it. So you've had the, the privilege of working with, as you mentioned, some of the, the greatest copywriters who've ever lived. And so I'd love to hear then what's going on inside their brains in terms of what makes them more persuasive than the rest of us and, and how can professionals uh, you know, get some of that magic? You know, it's really hard work. I mean, when I say I'm not a copywriter, I say that because I don't have the discipline that most copywriters have and their brains work differently at the highest level. I mean, there are copywriters and there are copywriters, but their brains just work differently. And what I find, and the one characteristic, and there are a lot of them, I have a blog post and I think it's in my book in Overdeliver. It's uh, the seven characteristics of every copywriter, every great copywriter that I ever work with. And the one that, that sticks out is insatiable curiosity, that you have to have this need to go deeper and, you know, you get the answer, but it's not the answer. And you're always looking for that next tidbit, that next level of knowledge that's going to enable you to write copy that's going to, you know, sing. In fact, Gene Schwartz, who's one of the greatest copywriters who ever lived, used to say, I don't write copy, I assemble copy. And let's talk a little bit more about this point of I don't write copy, I assemble copy, and what's not in this book. I, I think that's an interesting perspective. So so the distinction between writing and assembling, uh, what is it? So I'll give you a story. I had a copywriter. I wanted him to write for a newsletter of mine. It was a, a newsletter that was written by a natu naturopathic physician, and I gave him back issues. I showed him packages that had been written before the usual start package that I give a copywriter. And he looked at it and he said, there's nothing new here. There's nothing exciting. And I don't think I'd be able to write an exciting package for this because most of the stuff is, is kind of, you know, duh. It's like, it's basic, it's important, but it's not cutting edge. And so he said to me, I said, I have a feeling that there's more here why don't you talk to the guru, the doctor who's behind the newsletter, and just have a talk to him and see what you can find out. Maybe there's there's more here. Again, what's not in the newsletter? And lo and behold, he, he, he had a, a long call with him and he came back to me and he goes, do you know that your editors are rejecting a lot of the things that he wants to put in the newsletter that's exciting, not because they're irresponsible, but because they want to be careful that they're not it's not information that they feel they can back up and they don't want to put it in because they feel like for legal reasons. And so he just took it on himself. And this is, again, the, the beauty of having a copywriter who's going to go after the information. And he basically 
took all the things that were on the cutting room floor and was able to resurrect some of them with additional research. Now, he couldn't resurrect everything because some of it was controversial, but he was able to resurrect a lot of it. So that's an example of assembling copy and being able to find content that you wouldn't normally get if without an extra inquiry. I also think this idea of assembling copy is what Gene Schwartz would do. He would go through the book, like if I gave him a book to, to direct mail piece for, he would go through the book and he would start writing what he calls fascinations like from the copy. And that would give him the best nuggets for the direct mail piece. And that enabled him to figure out what's not in the book. So that while we might know some things that might not be in the book, he would figure it out because he'd get so far with a certain fascination or a certain bullet point. And he said, oh, but there's this next level and I can get to that, but I need more information. And so he would go back to the editors to get more information as well. So that's kind of the concept of assembling copy. It is what's there because you're going to assemble the copy from the content, but it's then what's not there. And it's, uh, I have other examples in my book about copywriters who just never were satisfied with what was there and they knew that there was more. And that's what made the package sing and what made the promotion sing. And when you say sing, I'd love to get a little bit of a perspective here in terms of what would you say are the kinds of, of improvements that you'd seen, like with the, the same product, just with different words, trying to sell it? I mean, do you get double, triple the response rate when it's uh, kind of revamped effectively? Yeah, I've seen it. I mean, I've also seen 5% lifts or 5% here or there, and it doesn't matter. But you do get the 30, 40, 50% lifts in response when you do something outrageously different. And I think this is in my book, but I know I wrote a blog post about it. We had a book in our stable. We used to, Marty Edelston, who was the founder of Boardroom, was a genius and had a real good sense about what our audience was like because he was the audience. And so he created a book called The Book of Checklists. And with the intuition that people love checklists, they love crossing things off checklists. and he thought it was going to be a winner. He had a package written by, you know, not one of the best copywriters, but an okay copywriter. And it was a disaster. It was just terrible. And we thought about it. Now, sometimes you can give up and sometimes you want to stay with it. And we thought about it. And we said, you know, this book is too good, but maybe checklists isn't it. So then he made it. We changed the title, same book. And we changed the title to something like The Great Book of Inside Knowledge or something like that. And we made it this like encyclopedia of knowledge, but we didn't drastically change the promotion, but we just revamped it a little bit like tweaks and whatever. But we changed the premise of checklists to inside knowledge. And not only did it not do as well, it did worse. So then again, we said, you know, the content of this is really good. We think there's something here. And we took it to, at that point, our secret weapon copywriter, Mel Martin, who was a kind of the master of fascinations, the idea of taking a book, going in it, what Gene Schwartz did too, which was pull the bullet points out of this book. And he revamped the whole thing. And the new title was The Book of Secrets, as opposed to Inside Knowledge. Inside Knowledge, secrets is a better word, clearly. 
but then he redid the mailing piece. And I remember that there were four fascinations on the outer envelope and he chose them because, you know, this is his intuition of what the things that would make people vibrate the most. It was things like, um, I'm trying to think if I can remember all of them. I don't think I can, but I have, there was one that was how to outwit a mugger in a self-service elevator. And there was another <laughs> one that was how to know when a slot machine is going to pay off. Another one was uh, what food never to buy in a health food store. So he didn't test them because he just had to go out with something, but he had hundreds of these fascinations and he picked the four that he wanted to put on the outer envelope. And that mailing piece for that same book, the content of the book was the book of checklists. In fact, the book was like a vertical book because it was shaped like a checklist, but it was the book of secrets. I just bought one on eBay. I, I, I didn't have a copy of it and I found one on eBay, which was neat. That book ended up mailing 25 million pieces. We did the single biggest mailing in our history for that book, which was 9 million pieces. I mean, I'm giving you the most severe success that we had, but just to show you that revamping a concept and a package and, uh, and then we also, then once we had a winner, he would then test different fascinations on the outer envelope. He would test different headlines and then you get the incremental lifts. You get the, you know, 5% better or 10% better, but the, you know, now I think that book of secrets from great book inside knowledge from book of secrets was probably 200% lift from the original. So that was three times as effective. Yeah. Hot dog with the same stuff. Well, that is illustrative. Thank you. So, well, let's see. So we talked about this in, in a context of writing and mailing. So let's take this into the context of a professional at work. Maybe they're writing an email, so they're being persuasive via writing, or maybe they're just kind of conversing verbally. You know, what are some of the influence or persuasion universals that they can draw from this and uh, use effectively to get yes more often from from colleagues or customers? Yeah, that's a good question. I I think I'll put it in the context of something from my book, which was the Marty himself was, I, I remember the day of his funeral, I was going to give a eulogy and I was up at two in the morning at my kitchen table. And again, just like I, I looked at the seven characteristics that made every copywriter great, I wanted to figure out what the things that made Marty great. And I figured out it was there were four things. I mean, these are like, I guess these are four, I think I call them four things to being an extraordinary human being. And there is overlap with what I talked about with the copywriters. And so number one is that Marty outworked everybody and not outwork like I'm going to step on your toes and I'm going to run roughshod over you and I'm going to beat you at your game and all that. There is some of that but it's really outworking everyone to me is a form of generosity that if you can show by example what you do at a high level, I think you set yourself up by example. And Marty was not a great teacher of what made him great, but he was a great shower of what was making him great. And that was something that I thought was a way that he outworked and outworking everybody was generosity. The second pillar of being extraordinary and related to copy, it's actually one of the same premises, which was possess insatiable curiosity. Marty created publications and books that help consumers in a variety of 
areas in their life, whether it was health or finance. And he just never stopped. He was, you know, not an expert himself, but he was the bloodhound. He was the watchdog. He was the person that was going to possess that insatiable curiosity, just like the copywriters did when they went and found the best information for their promotions on the cutting room floor. The third thing, similar to the copywriters, when they would go to their peers to get feedback, Marty would surround himself with smart people. I always say, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And therefore, like I'm at a stage in my career where I see myself as a teacher, but I'm also a student. And so I run two mastermind groups, but I'm in three others that I spend a lot of money on and that I go to find new knowledge and new things because, you know, you're never done with learning. And so uh, I, I just thought about this two months ago. I, I had a stroke, survived, okay. and I, I feel fortunate about that. But I feel even more of a, a need to be a student. Like I, I'm not done. And so you're never done. And so that is, is another transferable characteristic that takes the copywriting that you're always learning and you take it to a bigger thing in your job. And the fourth pillar was that with Marty, it was help other people first. For me, it's always contribute first. So people look at me as a networker and I know a lot of people in the industry and I'm well-connected, but I hate the word networking. I like the word contribution to connect. And so that is a characteristic that if you are always contributing to people around you, and I've done it for 40 years, so the track, you know, it, it's paid off that, you know, not always, but sometimes you contribute too much and with nothing in return, but you don't look for anything in return. And I'll tell you what comes back is unbelievable. So the publications that we had and the books we had were to help people live a better life and, and help more consumers than he would ever have thought of he'd be able to do in his lifetime. But it was always about helping first, contributing first. And then what came back was, you know, a flood of satisfaction and things that he never could have predicted and I never could have predicted by living my life this way because I followed his premise. Well, those are some great principles. And well, I'm intrigued by a few of those things there. Well, you mentioned a stroke and well, one, hey, we're, we're so glad you're you're doing better. Oh, thank you. And two, but that gets, gets me thinking about sort of health and sustainability because doing those things, you know, that's some extra effort yeah. that's required. So any pro tips for handling that stuff without burning out or, or getting into some health trouble? Yeah, that's a good question because I got into health trouble. I don't think it was stress. It was more like just burning the candle at both ends and travel. And I think that you have to listen to your body. I mean, I don't think I have any pro tips, so to speak, because I don't do as I say, not as I do. But I think that you want to control what you can control. You want to obviously eat well and exercise and all of that, but you want to control the stress in some way. So whatever it is, I mean, it's funny, I, I don't, I just started meditating, but I know meditation is a great way or yoga or, you know, whatever, running, bicycling, whatever. But one of the things that, that I do to alleviate stress is umpiring baseball. And 
you'd say, well, how is that relaxing? You know, you miss a call and there's somebody coming at you with a baseball bat. And I think for me, and, and so it's not that I want everybody to become an umpire, but I want people to understand that for me, umpiring is a place where I go, where I focus on something other than my work and where I have to be focused in otherwise I'm going to get yelled at if I miss a call or I miss something. And I think you can draw an analogy in whatever you do. If you take it seriously, that if you have something where, you know, you're a serious uh, marathon runner and you're always trying to beat your time or you're a serious meditation person that you always want to increase your meditation practice and you sort of compete with yourself to always get better, but it's not related to the thing that you spend the most time with. Now, of course, family is another place where you can go and do that too. So there's a lot of places in your life, but I think you need things that are an outlet. So if we talk about work here, because this is what more, kind of the underpinning of this of this podcast, that to be great at work means you have to be great at other things not related to work and to find things that you can get out of thinking about work for some period of time is really healthy. So that would be one. But I, again, you know, it's the normal take care of yourself and, and do that. I think in the, in terms of the premise of my book, Over Deliver, there's a lot of traps in Over Delivery. I titled the book this because Over Deliver, first of all, Over Deliver is not a word. So I own the word basically, but it's two words are hyphenated. But as one word, it, it's powerful for me because I think you can over deliver in every part of your life. You can over deliver just as a marketer. You know, you give away more than the customer would have ever expected. That's an obvious way to over deliver. You can over deliver in your relationships by playing a hundred zero as opposed to 50 50. And you always contribute without a, a need to get something in return. You can over deliver in your relationships so that you are giving more than you ever would have wanted or people ever would have expected. But the dangers and where stress can come and is when you do it and you're not, again, I'm not perfect at this, believe me, but you over deliver too much and then the expectation is too high. And then the next time you come out and you're not over delivering and you're only delivering well, it's all of a sudden, what are you doing for me lately? And then if you are like me, you say, oh no, I screwed up and I put myself in a bad situation and that could cause stress and, and lead to an unhealthy, an unhealthy environment. And then the last thing about your health and all the things that you do in your life, I think that the one thing that can really screw people up and it screwed me up and I think it, people will relate to this is envy. I think envy, I'll say envy kills. Envy makes you sick. And the way that I've been able to deal with envy, you know, when, when you see somebody doing something better than you, when you see somebody doing a launch that did well and you never could get there, or you see somebody achieving in some way that you wanted to achieve in and you're not able to get there, that is sometimes you're, you're envious. And what you have to do is go from envy to gratefulness. And so the example I can give is if you are at an event and someone is 
speaking and they're amazing and you know you you were speaking and you didn't think you were as amazing as, rather than being envious being able to go to that person and hopefully you can talk to them about what they did to do such a great job and to get that input and to get that information is a way to take envy and turn it into gratefulness to that person for sharing it and so i'm not envious in my life for the most part but when i am envious and i feel like i'm getting ill of some sort i go to gratefulness and uh, there's a book by a, a guy by the name of norberto kepi called the origin of illness and uh, it kind of speaks to this that envy is the root of all evil and uh, I really believe that. Well, thank you. Any other kind of mistakes you think people tend to make when they're going after over-delivery or they're going after persuasion? Yeah, I think you can give away too much. And I don't know what that line is because I tend to give away too much. But when I, I kind of have figured out, I know it when I see it because like I blog every Sunday and uh, I always invite my readers to give me input and to and I give them a lot of free stuff. And then I, and so I've over delivered too much in some cases when I start getting a flood of emails and requests. Like I have a list of, I don't know, 11,000 people or 12,000 people. And it's one thing to send me an email with a thanks for that input. My experience has been this and just a little share to, a whole list of asking me for advice and opinions. And I don't want to be not gracious because I'm trying to be as generous as possible, but I charge a lot of money for my time and I can't get annoyed by it because that would be disingenuous. Like in, in that example, if someone's asking me for my opinion, which would be a consulting call, I kind of lay it out that I, you know, I charge for consulting. I give them a little piece that I can give them, but not much because I don't have the time and I feel bad, but you know, that's where I have to dial it back a little bit. So I don't know if that answered the question, but I think I get myself in trouble as opposed to ignoring everybody. I'd rather be on that this side of it than on the side of just, I'm too good for you and I'm going to ignore you and you want to pay me, I'll give you advice. I try to create a middle ground and Sometimes I, I get myself in trouble because of that. But again, I'd rather err on the side of that than on the side of I'm going to protect myself completely. Well, now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? One is in marketing and in life, everything is not a revenue event, but everything is a relationship event. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? Favorite study or experience. I think learning how to survey and learning how to get the opinions of your customers to find out what they need as opposed to what you think they need is a basic premise of marketing. And it's one that a lot of people don't use enough. So I would say it's that. And a favorite book? I have at least two. One of my favorite books is Breakthrough Advertising by Eugene Schwartz, the best book on copywriting, marketing, but it's bigger than that because it's about human behavior. Another one is Paulo Coelho's The Alchemist, which is kind of one that I read every year to just remind me of my personal legend and what I'm up to and that I'm still on that path. And then the third would be Adam Grant's Give and Take, which is an amazing book on 
giving and taking, but the beauty of that book is that he says early on that there are givers, takers, and matchers in the world, people who give, people who take, and people who match 50-50. And he said, you know, the most unsuccessful people in the world, what would you think they are? And you assume that it's takers and it's actually givers. But giving, and this goes back to too much over-delivery, that if you give too much, then you're going to be a loser because you're never going to take care of yourself. So then he says, who are the most successful people in the world? And he says, they're also givers, but you have to give strategically and you have to give. And that's the trick, you know, giving strategically, over-delivering strategically. I'm still learning it, but, you know, I'm always experimenting. And how about a favorite tool, something you use that helps you be awesome at your job? I would say that looking for groups of people that have information that I don't have. So, I mean, that's broad, but, and I do it in small groups and I do it in big groups in masterminds, but I do it in small groups too. Like going out and always finding that next piece of knowledge, that next person. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? So I would definitely point them to the site for my book, uh, which is www.overdeliverbook.com, overdeliverbook.com. And on that site is uh, an opportunity to buy my book. But there's also, you come back to the site after you buy the book and you put in your order number and there are 11 bonuses on that page. And it's stuff like a swipe file of going back to 1900, going back to original source, going back, getting a file of things that you can use to help you with your marketing. So there's 11 different things on this site that are just, I guess I have a book called Over Deliver, so I guess I have to over deliver. So it's overdeliverbook.com. Okay. And, and all those bonuses are listed right there. Yeah, they're all listed on the site. And, and then you opt into my list. I don't do affiliate programs. I blog every Sunday and you'll get hopefully some wisdom once in a while from me. So there's just a lot of information there. And I think that's the best way to connect with me and uh, learn a lot of the things that I spoke about today if you're audience is interested. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? I always say go forth and multiply. And I think the best way to do that is to contribute to connect. That always contribute first before you ask for anything, before like tell people what you have to offer them before you ask them for something. And don't make asks of people out of nowhere. Like Someone who you only know for a short time, don't make a, an ask if it's, you know, not appropriate. And so, because I think if you work on your relationship capital and develop it over a long period of time, that is a great way to live your life. And so I would say contribute to connect as opposed to networking. Well, Brian, this has been a treat. I wish you lots of luck with your books and adventures and all you're up to. Thank you very much, Pete. I really appreciated Brian's story illustrating the notion of what a reframe can do. That is when we had insider knowledge checklists to secrets and then secrets did the trick in a way that it was like, 
three times as effective as the others. So I think there's some cool stuff there associated with persistence, associated with being humble and changing your game when something's not quite working and finding just the right angle that's going to make something resonate. So if you have put forward an idea that got shot down in a hurry, maybe there is a way to resurrect that with a new title, a new bit of emphasis. There's hope. You might have three times the positive reception the next time you launch the thing. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F463. Or if you expand the episode notes or show notes or episode description, there's different ways they call it in different podcast apps. You could tap that directly right inside your podcast app and type fewer words to get to the show notes, which is pretty cool. If you haven't already subscribed and hope you do, you'll catch our next guest. It's Scott Jeffrey Miller from Franklin Covey. If you're an astute listener, you might say, I thought this one was supposed to be Scott Jeffrey Miller. We had a slight rearranging, but it's all good. Scott Jeffrey Miller is coming up next. I hope to catch you there and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.